This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today, our guest is Jason Hoeksema, biology professor at the University of Mississippi and president of the Delta Windbirds organization. He's always looking to help create and preserve areas for windbirds to thrive during their long migrations. So we'll talk about these birds, where they can be found, and how you might could help them with their yearly journey. And as always, Dr. Major is here ready for your pet questions. To join our conversation this morning, it's a phone call, one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464. You can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. If you happen to miss Creature Comforts Thursday mornings, a reminder that it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning, Libby. How are you doing this morning? Good morning. I'm doing great. Uh, we always like to get your update of well, what's uh, there in your surroundings uh, and your porch and things. So what are you seeing out there this morning? Let's see. Lots of hummingbirds. Uh, they're all over the trumpet vine, as well as being on the feeders. In fact, I got a new feeder so I could have out a little more nectar juice or a little more sugar juice, sugar, sugar water for them. And let's see. Oh, one thing I was going to mention, too, is in the evenings listening for, uh, last night we heard Katie Dids, crickets, and earlier had heard cicadas, too. So I thought it might be fun for our listeners to listen at night outside and uh, learn the difference between those three insects that are calling. And uh, a reminder to dump out any standing water you have around your house. Uh, Paul does a little walk about the whole place every now and then and dumps out any old flower pots or buckets that have water in them because uh, mosquito larvae only takes them, a, gosh, sometimes only a day or two until they're um, laying eggs and they're hatching in any standing water around your place. It's a conservation-friendly way to eliminate mosquitoes in your yard and in your neighborhood. Uh, so on the, the cicadas and the crickets, could you recommend mm-hmm. maybe an online uh, resource that folks could maybe go to to try to determine, uh, the to help s- figure out which one they're hearing? I just did a DuckDuckGo search for those sounds because I haven't settled on any one source of sounds yet, but that's a good question, and um, I'll keep uh, kind of search in the net and see which sounds I like the best. And in, some of our listeners might have an opinion about that to help me out. But I don't know of a single place. Like I, you know, routinely go to Cornell for my bird sounds mm-hmm. if I'm listening online. But for insects, I haven't found that one place yet. All right. But, yeah, I'm sure online uh, there'll be sites where you can do that. And then it would be fun to see if you can hone your ear so you can uh, hear the difference between those because – my untrained ear, they all kind of sound the same to me. Well, sometimes it's hard because I think they kind of blend together when they're going at the same time. But um, after listening to the recordings, it was kind of easy for me to say, oh, yeah, that's so-and-so, that's so-and-so. And it helped me that there were really only three choices last night. I didn't hear any frogs. When the frogs join in, I think it's going to be more difficult. <laughs> Libby, Troy here. Yes. Can you tell the difference between the uh, 
frog call and the crickets. In other words, we have actually a toad that makes the cricket sound. Yes, that's, um, you know, and I, that could be tricking me, and how would I know? But um, exactly, some of the frog songs, yeah, and I don't know a lot of the frog songs like Joe does, but the ones that I know are distinctive enough from the cricket that I could tell them apart, I right. think. But uh, you know how that goes. If I got an expert over here in the yard with me, I might be sadly mistaken. <laughs> okay. Uh, just a reminder, the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science is open. It opened at the end of June, uh, but there are some safety guidelines in place. Of course, uh, there is a statewide mask mandate, so they require a mask at the museum as well. And also there are timed arrival reservations are required to visit the museum. If you'd like some more information, you can call the museum at 601-576-6000, or you could go to www.mdwfp.com slash museum. Also, the Mississippi State Parks are offering a camping special where if you, uh, you'll enjoy one night free of camping when you book two nights. And again, you can visit the website of the Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Parks, mdwfp.com, for details. So, Dr. Major, we have a couple of pet questions for you to open this morning. Uh, this first one is from a listener in Alabama who says, My cat has been recently diagnosed with megacolon. He's less than two years old, has been very healthy pre-morbidity. Per my vet's suggestions, I'm giving him Miralax, a half teaspoon twice a day mixed into wet food. Also been providing a high-protein dry food. Uh, which he prefers. He's active and in good spirits. His fluid intake and urine output appear to be normal. However, he's not having daily stools once uh, only every two to three days. Uh, the owner's worried and was because the, the cat cannot afford to need another enema. Looking for suggestions on diets or supplements or any uh, information that you might could give. Well, this can be a serious problem, of course. And uh, did she say how old the cat was? I missed that. Uh, yeah, less than two years old. Which is a little strange. Usually we see this in an older cat. So there may be a uh, congenital-type issue going on here with this cat, which could be a, a, a real problem. Some of the megacolon uh, cats require surgery, and it would be a specialized-type surgery that would have to be done. Mm. They can actually take a section of the... Uh, uh, colon out, re-anastomose it, and hopefully this would not occur again. I would consult with her vet uh, from the standpoint of uh, maybe a different type of laxative, uh, and hopefully this cat can uh, survive and do okay by increasing the amount of laxative rather than having to do enemas. If you can imagine... <laughs> Who likes an enema? Anyway, cats cats hate it, okay, very definitely hate it. And it can be, uh, what should I say, harmful to the cat if you have to do too much. So she needs to be in constant contact with her, her vet, and it may be that she needs to uh, go to the university or for a specialist-type clinic for this. Okay. Uh, here's an email from a listener in Tupelo. says, I have a flat coat retriever, 10 years old. We cook ground beef or ground turkey and mix pinto beans with it. She gets an allergy shot every few months for itching skin. My wife says if the dog eats dog food, she has terrible gas. We originally started cooking because of the itching, and at the time it seemed to get better. Are we doing okay with this, or should we be feeding the dog dog food? It would be much easier than cooking. Well, it's always a, some people are very adept at cooking and you know can balance the diet pretty well. 
it sounds like this is diet is some of the basic uh, things that the dog needs. However, it may not be that this is caused by a food allergy as far as the uh, the itching. So I'm not sure what type of medication uh, the dog has been taking. Uh, sometimes steroids are used. Uh, there are two other drugs, non-steroidal, that are being used also. One is called Apoquil, and the other is Cytopoint. Cytopoint is an injection. Apoquil would be in pills. So, again, back to uh, conversations with her vet, uh, I would prefer the dog to be on a good quality dog food. And there are dog foods that are hy- hypoallergenic. Uh, they've had the allergens removed. And one of these is made by a uh, prescription diet called ZD, Z as in zebra. And uh, it does have some benefit uh, for a lot of dogs that truly have a food allergy. So I'm not sure what kind of allergy this dog has. That's that's the problem. But as you suggested, this might be another one that kind of keep close contact with the vet and, and work through some different uh, things to see how the dog might respond to maybe different foods or, uh, if that's not the case, trying to discover where this allergy is coming from. Right. And it sounds like they have been in contact with their vet, but it can be very frustrating uh, to try to control allergy or atopy in a dog. Uh, I've really been impressed with the use of Cytopoint in the last year or so, and it seems to work well with very little side effects. So, Dr. Major, I assume that uh, with the kind of our new reality here during the pandemic that you've kind of adapted and have things been going well with that new system of kind of having your your folks wait in outside and, and bringing the pets in uh, the clinic when you're treating the animals? You know, it can be very frustrating for both staff and the client, I, I, if you understand what I'm saying because we can get backed up. And uh, when I say backed up, you have emergencies, you have surgery, and you're trying to treat the patients that have been presented for various problems. But it's working pretty well. And I, you know, you get aggravated uh, when you think about people that don't really think that this is a real thing. The COVID-19 is real. And if you look at the statistics, Mississippi is right at one of the few things we're at the top of. <laughs> but we're at the top of uh, percentage-wise per population. Uh, so we have to be very careful. And I would encourage not just pet owners but everyone to follow guidelines and be as safe as possible. Very well said. Uh, We need to take a break. Uh, When we return, we'll begin our discussion with Jason Hoeksema. He's our guest today. He's a biology professor at the University of Mississippi and president of the Delta Windbirds organization. We'll talk about their upcoming online event and how we can tell which birds are actually windbirds, also known as shorebirds. So stay tuned. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. Our guest for the day is Jason Hoeksema, president of the Delta Windbirds organization. If you want to join our conversation this morning with your question or comment, the phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 Or you can email the show, send it to animals at mpbonline.org. 
So thanks for joining us this morning, Jason. If you would, uh, tell us a little bit about your background and how you became involved with the Delta Windbird organization. Sure. Um, glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Um, well, I have a background in biology. Um, I was an undergraduate at the University of Michigan, and uh, growing up, I thought I was going to be uh, a bird biologist, an ornithologist, and I took classes on birds, and um, I, I did as much work as I could in that field, uh, but at some point, uh, what happened is I thought I should broaden my horizons, and I started studying plants, and um, I, I ended up, for my scientific research, getting kind of sucked into the whole world of plants and mushrooms, but I've always kept birds as a, as a hobby, and I loved birds growing up. Um, and so uh, as I moved around the world and uh, became uh, a professional biologist, I uh, always kept an eye on ways to be involved in the bird world and, and conserving birds and, uh, and educating people about them. And uh, so here in Mississippi, um, I, uh, I'll tell you a little bit more in a minute about Delta Windbirds, but I found that it was a great opportunity to see some of the my favorite birds in the world, which are the shorebirds. Uh, before we dive into that, um, you have an online event that's happening this Saturday. So if you could start off by telling us about that. Sure. Um, that'll be at 3 p.m. on Saturday, and it'll be streaming live on Facebook through the Delta Windbirds Facebook page. Uh, you can also join through Zoom uh, if you register at our website, and that would allow you to interact directly with me and ask questions. And that'll be an introduction to these shorebirds that'll be really visual, a lot of great photographs from uh, friends and colleagues of mine and some videos, and we'll really show you what these birds are all about and talk about their biology and their natural history and their conservation. Uh, that's free, and it starts at 3 p.m. on Saturday. All right, so again, uh, the Delta Windbird Organization Facebook page would be a place to go to get more information about that and, as you say, to sign up uh, to be a, a part of the Zoom uh, call as well. So if you would, tell us you know, about the Delta Windbird Organization, kind of the work that it does and, and its goals. Sure. Well, I should first say that these birds uh, that we refer to as the shorebirds uh, are also sometimes referred lovingly as the windbirds. And this is a group of birds that is to some degree lesser known. They're not as um, bright and colorful and right on your back porch as a cardinal or a blue jay. Um, but these are amazing birds that uh, are really, really impressive. And I think probably the first thing that captivated me about them was when you're watching them, you can just see their amazing ability to communicate. And when they fly uh, in flocks during migration, they do this thing called murmuration. And you know, murmuration is a phenomenon. It was a, a term that was coined uh, to mean flocks of birds that are flying in coordination where you, it's seemingly impossible how they don't run into each other. And you may have seen this with flocks of starlings or blackbirds. And there was a famous video about murmuration of starlings that went viral uh, a number of years ago. But shorebirds do this as well in a really impressive fashion. And just watching them do that over the beaches and mudflats of the world is is a really captivating phenomenon. And um, the other thing that's amazing about these birds is they are the champion migrants of the of the world, of any animal, um, not just 
among the birds. Uh, to give you the most extreme example I know of, there's a bird called the bar-tailed godwit. That uh, it's a pretty big, chunky uh, shorebird, maybe the size of a of a small chicken, and it nests in Alaska. And it was recently discovered using uh, implanted devices that they they migrate to New Zealand. And it was known that they wintered in New Zealand. They they breed in Alaska, uh, and it was a mystery how they got to New Zealand and through the implanting these radio trackers, it was found that they make that flight nonstop. Wow. <laughs> uh, this is a flight of more than you know, 5,500 miles. It takes them nine days, and they they don't stop to eat or to, to drink water or to rest at all. It's really one of the most incredible physiological feats of, of nature. And uh, their organs shrink down to, to nothing and... Um, uh, they lose half their body weight, and they—it's thought that they probably sleep half their brain at a time while they're doing it. It's just stunning that they can accomplish this feat, and and they're not the only ones. These shorebirds, a lot of them, nest in the Arctic, in the north, and spend the winter in the southern hemisphere, and make big non nonstop flights of a thousand or twenty-five hundred miles or more at a time. So I'm just really impressed by them, and um, have been inspired to try to help their populations. So. That's what Delta Windbirds is about, is taking advantage of the fact that uh, here in Mississippi, we have a great opportunity to help these birds. Um, these birds, not all of them fly nonstop from the Arctic to the Southern Hemisphere. In fact, most of them do some stopover uh, where they, they, they need to stop and rest and feed for up to you know, 10 or 15 days at a time. And they really require high quality habitat along the way. And these are wetlands, these are shallow water and mudflats and sand, sandy beaches uh, where they can probe the soft soil and mud uh, for worms and other invertebrates. And so, and a lot of them need to stop here in Mississippi. And we have a great opportunity to provide habitat for them here uh, when they're stopping over during their journeys. So, so we, that's what Delta Windbirds is trying to do. So when you we talk about the term shorebird, and I guess shorebird and windbird would be interchangeable when talking about the birds? Yeah, for sure. Uh, shorebird is a little bit confusing because uh, these birds don't just occur on the shore. Uh, and there are a lot of other birds that do occur on the shore. Um, but that's the, that's the birding term for them that is most commonly used. Um, and indeed, they, they spend a lot of time, some of them, on beaches and the shores of oceans and, and the Gulf of, New, uh, Gulf of Mexico. Uh, but a lot of them also use wetlands that are interior in our, in our state, freshwater wetlands, uh, catfish ponds that are drying down, um, uh, even you know, water, wastewater treatment plants. Um, and they need this open water and mudflat habitat. Um, windbird is a, a term of endearment that was coined by uh, the great naturalist Peter Matheson, when he wrote um, his book on the shorebirds of North America that was published for the first time in 1967, and he described them as birds of wind, and, and he was captivated by them. And, and he, he has a poetic phrase that I, I, I won't read on the, on the radio, but um, if you look up Peter Matheson and, and that book, it really captures the, the essence of why we love these birds. So sometimes we call them wind birds uh, out of appreciation. A call to get to, but first, a kind of a follow-up. You were talking about that the mega migration that they do. Do they stock up first, do they like beef up before they make that, what was it, 5,500-mile journey? They do. That's a good question. Um, 
These birds take advantage of the short but really productive summers in the north, and they eat like crazy, um, especially after they're done breeding and making babies and feeding their babies. They they bulk up. Uh, they put on a lot of fat. Uh, migratory birds put on a really high density layer of of fat that has um, a lot of calories, and uh, and then they burn that when they're flying. And uh, that's a really important part of their migration is that staging uh, time at the beginning uh, in the north when they can find really good quality habitat up there and spend uh, several weeks usually uh, bulking up and gaining a lot of weight that they're going to lose in the next few weeks. We do have a caller on the line, so why don't we say good morning to our friend Sue, who calls in from Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. You're on the air with us. Good morning. I'd like, <clears throat> excuse me, I'd like to ask your, <clears throat> excuse me, ask your guest a question about the albatross. I don't know if it's apropos with shorebirds. Go ahead. Uh, well, I, I uh, wondered if... Well, I, you know, uh, albatross are amazing birds. They are not in the group of birds that we call shorebirds. And I should say the shorebirds, to, to give you some examples, um, this group of birds is uh, several different families, uh, including some that you might be familiar with, like the killdeer or killdee. This is a bird that nests... Uh, uh, in gravel parking lots and baseball diamonds and, and open fields. And um, they have cute little babies that we can see running around sometimes. Uh, another group of birds is the sandpiper. So if you've spent time on the beach, uh, you've seen sanderlings and willets and other shorebirds that, that live there running in after the waves and grabbing little things out of the, out of the sand behind the waves. Those are shorebirds. So sandpipers, plovers like killdeer, um, Another bird you might be familiar with is the woodcock. Uh, the American woodcock is a bird of the uplands, and you know they like uh, creek bottoms near, with with open woods and and fields nearby. And they have an amazing uh, uh, courtship ritual that they perform in the spring that we get to see around here. And and Delta Windbirds will take you on a field trip to see those. Uh, we do that every year, and and so you can find um, find an opportunity in the future when we're able to do field trips, and we'll take you to see that. Snipe are a type of shorebird uh, that you might be familiar with. They're a real bird. If someone sends you on a snipe hunt, that's not just a prank. Uh, they do exist, and they're pretty common in the winter out in the delta and in flooded fields. So those are some examples. Albatross are amazing, and they are also incredible migrants uh, and have uh, physiology that is really amazing as well. That's what I wanted to ask you. I've read that they never land, that they stay in the air all the time, and that can't be possible. How, how, where do they go to nest? They have to land to nest, don't they? They do land to nest, yeah. Uh, they they stay in the air for long, long periods of time when they're not nesting. But during the nesting season, they do land. Uh, there's some um, uh, small islands in the, Pacific, in the South Pacific, for example, where they nest. And uh, they come back every year to the same spot on the, these little islands to... Uh, lay uh, an egg and, and raise a, a baby. And there's one that's been tagged there, actually, uh, that is known to be more than 50 years old, uh, this same albatross. Uh, but yeah, they do go on to land to make their nests. You know, one thing I like about being the host of the show is I always learn things. And Jason, I always thought, too, that, you know, the snipe, let's go snipe hunting, that that was just a prank. But it's it's good to know that uh, there there is a bird out there uh, called the snipe. So I'm, I'm glad that I could uh, learn that. <laughs> Um, so are uh, the are the shorebirds, windbirds generally smaller birds, or does is kind of a range? If you could give me give us uh, an idea of what some of these birds look like. 
Sure. So some of them are really small. The smallest one in the world is the the least sandpiper, which is the size of a essentially the size of a sparrow. Uh, it weighs uh, about the the same amount as a, a tablespoon and a half of butter, about 20 grams. Hmm. Um, and and then the biggest is the long-billed curlew, which we sometimes are lucky to, enough to have a couple of in Mississippi. And they're more like five sticks of butter. Uh, <laughs> and these are, these are more like chicken-sized birds with long necks and big, long bills that are um, six to eight inches long and down curved that they use to probe into the into the mud and pick out crabs and and snails and things like that. So um, they kind of run the gamut. They're not gigantic birds like big hawks uh, or eagles. Um, they're small to medium-sized birds. All right, uh, time for another break. When we get back, we'll continue talking with our guest, Jason Hoxima, about the work of the Delta Windbirds organization and uh, about you possibly lending a helping hand. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. Kevin Farrell here on Creature Comforts with Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, and Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Today we're visiting with Jason Hoxima, biology professor at the University of Mississippi and president of Delta Windbirds. You can join our conversation. We've got some open phone lines. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 you can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. So, Jason, before the break, we were talking about uh, migration, and you mentioned that some of them have this mega migration where they fly for thousands of miles without stopping, but you did mention that some of the other uh, wind birds do stop, especially here in Mississippi, to kind of refuel on their journey. Uh, are there some opportunities for Mississippians to help out to maybe provide habitat for these kind of birds? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one really exciting thing that inspired our organization is that there's a great opportunity to provide habitat, stopover habitat for these birds on private land, on, on working lands in Mississippi, in the Delta in particular. Um, for example, uh, we've been working with a farmer near Indianola the last couple of years, and he has already a really innovative farm where he has a, a a system to catch his runoff water so that he can recycle it and reuse it on his on his crops. But then at the end of the season, after he har harvests his corn, he has extra water in his reservoir. And we've been working with him to uh, pump that extra water out back onto his fields for the fall migration. And we tried this for the first time a couple of years ago, and we had a great response. We had thousands of these migratory shorebirds stop in his farm near Indianola and spend uh, seven to 10 days each. Um, and different species come in at different times. So in September, you get some uh, several species, and in October, a few new ones come in. And over the course of the season, we have more than 15 different shorebird species, and uh, uh, we estimated thousands of individuals that benefited from this habitat on this agricultural land in the Delta. And 
Uh, now, this is not um, uh, free. The, the farmer has to spend time and energy and money uh, to create this bird habitat. So uh, one of our key goals is to raise funds so that we can work with farmers uh, and other landowners in the Delta uh, to help them create this temporary wetland habitat for these migratory birds. Uh, we've had great success also working with duck hunters who have former catfish farms that uh, where they, they hunt ducks, they make habitat for ducks and other birds, and they're happy to work with us to make shorebird habitat during the fall. We, we focus on the fall because it's often so dry that there aren't a lot of natural flooded areas. So one way to help us is to pay attention to when we're trying to raise funds to work with these farmers and other landowners and uh, chip in. Uh, does providing habitat for shoreboards in some of these crop fields have other potential benefits? Yeah, good question. Uh, so one thing that we've been working on with this farm in Indianola the last couple of years is partnering with uh, the USDA to study the fact that uh, when you flood this irrigation water back out onto these fields and let it sit there for a few weeks, for a few months at a time, um, there are other benefits in keeping nutrients and soil from running off into the surrounding waterways and ultimately down out into the Gulf of Mexico. So nitrogen is a really valuable resource uh, for feeding crops, but when at the end of the season, we don't want it to wash into the streams and rivers uh, because it can cause eutrophication and contribute to the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and when you flood these fields with this water, bacteria actually work to remove nitrogen from the water and, and send it up into the air as gas. Uh, and we also, conserve soil and it keeps the soil from rushing off when we have rainstorms in the fall uh, when these fields are flooded and kept from draining naturally uh, that soil is conserved which is beneficial for the farmer and there's some preliminary indication that it may actually end up increasing crop yield the following year but we'll we'll have more data on that after this summer um, so how long has the delta windbird uh, organization been around well, we founded our organization in 2013. Um, we were inspired. It, it, the story actually started with the, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in 2010 when much, uh, a lot of bird habitat along the coast was damaged. And the, the Coast Guard was actually skimming oil and able to sell it. And that those funds were given to the USDA NRCS, the Natural Resource Conservation Service, to create bird habitat elsewhere to try to make up for some of that lost habitat. And they were really successful in a program called the Migratory Bird Habitat Initiative that lasted three years until 2013, basically doing the same thing that I was just describing, working with farmers and other private landowners, catfish farmers as well, to create temporary bird habitat. And I was just, um, you know, recreationally birding out in the Delta, and several of us were, my friends from Oxford, and we were zeroing in on some of these areas and finding all of these shorebirds that we don't get to see very often, and we talked to the farmers and found out about this program and that it was going to come to an end in 2013, so we decided to found this organization to try to pick up that slack and uh, make our own contributions to um, making habitat for these birds. and. You know, that come through Mississippi only for a few weeks or a few months per year, um, but they're really special, special birds. And so our inspiration was to try to help them uh, when they're here and, and lend them some some hospitality. 
So we started in 2013 and we've been working with private landowners every fall uh, since then. Um, have you been able to kind of scale it up? Have landowners been somewhat interested in, in working with you on these types of projects? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one way that we've been able to scale up was that we've conducted a series of workshops um, to teach landowners for on private lands, but also public land managers a little bit more about how to manage their habitat for shorebirds. Um, so we've worked with um, Manomet uh, Conservation Group on the East Coast um, that works on conserving shorebirds. And we put together these workshops and we've had land managers from seven states come to Mississippi to learn about how to manage their, uh, their land for these birds at certain times of year. And that's one way that, that uh, this knowledge and these practices have spread throughout the Southeast. Uh, these are really knowledgeable folks who um, know a lot about how to manage their land, but a lot of the focus is often on waterfowl. But it turns out that managing public and private lands for waterfowl, like ducks and geese, is really compatible with managing for these shorebirds as well. And the two can go hand in hand. And that's what we've tried to get the word out about. Uh, in terms of working with additional landowners in Mississippi, uh, we're always limited by, by funding. Um, it's expensive. It costs about $100 per acre uh, to make this habitat in the fall. And uh, so, you know, if you contribute $100 to our organization, you're making an acre of bird habitat. That's one way to to think about it. Um, and so, you know, that's our only limitation right now is, uh, is funding. And we have lots of landowners who would like to work with us and, uh, we're hoping to keep growing in the future. Uh, you had mentioned earlier, but what is it in the habitat that the, that the shorebirds in their migration, their journey, uh, need, what is it they get when they stop off here in Mississippi? Good question. So, um, different species of shorebirds specialize in different kinds of food. So, they have different shapes and sizes of their bills and different lengths of their legs. Uh, the long-legged ones like to wade through the water, and they'll sometimes scoop up swimming insects and other invertebrates, little crustaceans, little crabs, uh, sometimes little fish. Uh, others like to probe into the mud and find worms uh, and burrowing other burrowing animals, other arthropods. So if you watch them, you'll see each of them eating a little bit of a different kind of food. A lot of it is worms and other invertebrate, invertebrate animals like insects, crabs, snails, clams, and those kinds of things. Uh, so when we make habitat, we try to make a diversity of habitat so that it ranges from wet mud all the way to five or six or eight inches of water. And then we can host all of those different kinds of birds along that gradient. Some of these birds actually like turf. They'll find a turf farm and stop uh, and probe the, the wet turf for insects and other animals out there. But the ones that we focus on need a range of these kinds of foods in these muddy, shallow water habitats. So uh, one thing you might see if you look at a aerial photo of the delta or aerial imaging is that you see a lot of water, but a lot of that water is too deep for these birds. Um, a catfish pond uh, is too deep for these birds. Uh, they need shallow water. So when a catfish pond is is drained for temporarily to to uh, to repair the levees and to reshape them and get them get them back into uh, con proper condition. If that happens at the right time of year, then these birds go crazy. Um, they find these these spots, and as that water's drying out, uh, they 
they uh, they love it, and it's the, some of the best habitat that these birds can find along the way. Uh, let's uh, take another call before our next break, and it is Bill calling in from Greenwood. Good morning, Bill. Go ahead. How you doing? Uh, I like to know. Uh, uh, you talk about shorebirds. Are you talking about like seagulls and birds that stay right down there, like on the Gulf Coast and. How do they find their way all the way up here? They come up here through the Mississippi River, or because you know, uh, you know, I, I had never, I don't think I've seen them, but uh, I was wondering how do they get up here in the first place, so you can have a place yeah. to walk up. Yeah, Bill, that's a good question. The the name shorebird is a little bit of a misnomer because they're not just on the shore; they're not just down at the Gulf. Um, and, and we're not really talking about gulls and herons and egrets and those kinds of birds. These are sandpipers, plovers, killdeer, uh, godwits, uh, and birds like that. They're, they're small to medium-sized, kind of chunky birds with long, skinny bills, long, skinny beaks. And if you, um, the, the best time to see them around uh, interior Mississippi is during migration. So in the spring, March through May. And then again in the fall, starting right now and going through October, um, you can see them in flooded fields if there's shallow water. They're, they often, from a distance, look like little brown birds, but if you get up close, uh, they have a whole diversity of colors and shapes and sizes. So they're, they're not quite as obvious on the landscape always as, as seagulls or, as we call them, gulls and just um, other, other obvious shorebirds like that. But you know, when we say shorebird, we mean these, these sandpipers and plovers and uh, killdeer and and birds like that, and they get up here because they're amazing flyers. They're they're champion migrants. They can fly more than a thousand miles at a time, uh, and th- but then when they land, they're hungry, as you might expect. And so, you know, we try to set up the habitat so that when they land here, um, in the fall, right now, uh, we're getting them already, and they're coming down from the north, uh, where they nested up in the Arctic in Canada, and they're stopping here on their way south, where they're going to head to the Gulf of Mexico. They're going to head to South America. Uh, and they're coming through in, in droves in the next few weeks. The adults come first and, and then the young ones, and uh, we'll see them uh, coming through in bigger and bigger numbers over the next few weeks. All right, Bill, thanks for your question. It is time for our last break this hour. When we get back, uh, we'll continue our discussion with our guest today, Jason Hoeksema. He's president of the Delta Windbirds organization. Back to wrap up the show after this, so stay tuned. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest today is Jason Hoeksema, biology professor at the University of Mississippi. He's president of the Delta Windbird Organization. We've been talking about windbirds or shorebirds this morning. Uh, Jason, we've mentioned that uh, there are efforts underway in the Delta to try to provide uh, or sort of remake habitat for these birds when they stop here on their long migratory journeys. Are there any natural habitat areas left in the Delta for these birds? There are. uh, And one of the best is a special place called Sky Lake. Uh, this is a place that your listeners may already be familiar with because there's a WMA there, the Sky Lake WMA, which was established uh, less than a decade ago to help preserve this really amazing stand of old-growth cypress there. The bald cypress Tupelo Swamp there is incredible with trees that rival the size of any trees in the world, and you have to go see it if you have a chance. Um, but Sky Lake is a big natural oxbow lake that was, um, you know, thousands of years ago was part of the actual Mississippi River pathway. 
Uh, now it's a separate lake. And in a dry fall, which we haven't had for a while, it, we might have one this year, the, these oxbow lakes out in the delta will dry down and become giant mud flats and with shallow water and mud, just like I've been talking about. And um, Sky Lake is one of these that's the best that we know about out in, in our delta in, in the state of Mississippi. Uh, unfortunately, right now, uh, until very recently, there hasn't been public access to actually see this phenomenon on the lake itself. The WMA is, um, is covers part of the lake, but it's it's hard to get to the lake itself. The boardwalk at the WMA is only in the, in the swamp. Um, we just acquired a small patch of land on the shore of Sky Lake. Um, we're going to call this the DWB Sky Lake Nature Reserve, and it's going to be a place where people can go to see these migratory birds. And if you're interested in that, um, you know, send us an email uh, or visit our, our website and we'll provide you with more information about where to go for that. That's one of the best places that we know of in a dry year. When it's a wet fall, it fills up with water and it's not good habitat and these birds need to find elsewhere to go. Um, one good place that's not too far from us here in Oxford is uh, the Coldwater River National Wildlife Refuge, which is just south of the little town of Crowder out in the, in the southwest of Batesville. There's an observation tower there where you can go and sometimes see these birds. Um, in further south, the, the St. Catharines Creek National Wildlife Refuge is fantastic for seeing these birds, and it's really good right now. Go to that refuge and ask them where to see the shorebirds, and, and they'll send you out to some great spots. But I should say that uh, one of the best places to see them is down on the coast, in fact. Um, in migration in the fall and spring, but also in the winter, especially in the winter, you can go to the, the Harrison County beaches and the beaches in, in Jackson and um, uh, the other counties and Hancock County as well along the coast and find tons of these birds. Um, one of my favorite spots is Jones Park right in Gulfport there. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a beach on the east side of the, the Gulfport Harbor and you can go there, especially during low tide and see dozens and dozens of these birds of many different species, and it's a great opportunity. Um, you can also take the boat out to Ship Island and see these birds running around the perimeter of uh, one of the most beautiful places in Mississippi. Uh, just a couple minutes of the show left, uh, maybe uh, a spot away from the coast where we could uh, see the, the shorebirds? Yeah, so I mentioned St. Catharines Creek um, uh, National Wildlife Refuge. That's up near Natchez in Adams County. Um, right now, some friends of mine are finding a bunch of shorebirds in flooded fields um, near in Noxabee County, a place called Stan Tabor Road. So if you live in that area, um, drive on out to Stan Tabor Road and bring some binoculars and a telescope, and, and you'll probably run into some birders if you do that on the weekend, and that, they can show you how to find those birds. Um, if you have friends or acquaintances or neighbors that have a catfish farm, you know, ask them if they have any ponds that they're taking out of production right now that, that are being dried down or that have just shallow water in them. And if they wouldn't mind you going out there and taking a look, those can be some of the best places to see these birds. And those are hard to keep track of because they're, uh, they're, it's sort of random when that happens, but uh, that's worth keeping an eye out for. And also we you start can also go ahead them out. Sometimes you can see them at the margins of the reservoir. So uh, Sardis reservoir, uh, Enid, Grenada Lake, when those dry down a little bit at their edges, there's mud there, and those birds can be seen there as well. All right. Uh, at the start of the show, we mentioned your virtual event that's happening uh, this Saturday. If you could remind us of the details on that. Sure. I really encourage people to come to that because 
it'll be more visual. I'll be able to show you some of these amazing creatures with some video and some great photographs. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about the details of their fascinating biology. Uh, this is happening at 3 p.m. on Saturday afternoon. That's 3 p.m. Central Time. And you can watch it two different ways. You can find us on the web at our, um, at our Facebook page, Delta Windbirds Facebook page, and that'll stream live on our Facebook page. You can set yourself a reminder for that there. Or you can go to deltawindbirds.org slash events. Look at our events link, and there's information there. And if you do that, you can register for the Zoom session and be present right there with me and other members of our organization and ask questions directly in that session. And uh, I hope you'll consider one of those uh, opportunities. And then we'll follow that up the following week with more in-depth on how to identify these birds, how to recognize them. And so you can check out this Saturday's event as an introduction and see if you want to keep uh, uh, keep joining us. Okay, and in addition to your website, could you recommend if someone wants to learn more about shorebirds, maybe some other online resource? Sure. You know, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology has a great website that they call All About Birds. And if you uh, go to All About Birds and search for a few, few of these species, Search for uh, the Hudsonian godwit, for example, which is an amazing bird that we've only seen a few times in Mississippi. Uh, look at it. Look up information about the white-rumped sandpiper. Uh, look up information about the American avocet. Uh, All About Birds is a great website that has uh, reading, it has video, it has photographs, um, dynamic uh, uh, models showing the migra migration paths of these birds. So. That's probably the, the place I would suggest starting. All right. That is going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, funded provided in part by listeners just like you. If you need to hear today's show or previous show, you can find it at mpbonline.org slash Creature Comforts. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Liz Gill. For Libby Hartfield, Dr. Troy Major, and our guest Jason Hoxima, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned because up next at 10, it's AutoCorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. <laughs>